All right, Luke 19, starting in verse 28, is where we're going to pick up. Now, this morning, we're doing it a little bit different because um, next week, this morning, we're going to look at the, the account of the triumphal entry, or what would be commonly known in the church calendar as Palm Sunday, although in our account, we don't have any palms. Um, we're just, we're just skipping it all together. But this is the triumphal entry. We're, we're approaching Easter towards the end of the month. And the triumphal entry came at the first, uh, or the, the Sunday of the, a week apart from Easter. So, so Easter's on a, uh, on a Sunday, and then the previous Sunday is the triumphal entry. However, because like we don't have time to cover all of this in that one week, and we don't have multiple services, we are going to look at this morning the triumphal entry. Next week, we're going to look at the uh, account of Good Friday, the, the crucifixion of Christ um, on Sunday, because we don't have a Friday service. And then on Easter, we will land on uh, Mark 16, looking at the resurrection account in uh, the book of Mark. And so in order to be able to hit all of those, we're kind of take a little detour this morning. And I thought, you know, this morning, instead of giving you guys kind of the same thing that we just looked at, um, at the triumphal entry of Christ in the book of Mark not too long ago, uh, we would look at it from a different angle this morning in uh, the book of Luke. And so we're going to look at um, we're going to look at the triumphal entry. But more than that, we want to kind of see the type of kingdom that Christ brings, um, the type of king he is, and, and we're going to kind of look at that through the text. And so um, this morning we're going to we're going to look at it in in three parts. If, you, if you're taking notes, you may want to jot these uh, three sections down. The first portion we're going to look at is the idea of the mistaken kingdom. And we've talked a little bit about that in the Gospel of Mark, but this morning we're going to look at it, um, uh, just a real quick sketch of that. Um, secondly, we're going to look at a rejected king, and then lastly, we're going to look at a redeemed people. And so those are the three, a mistaken kingdom, a rejected king, and a redeemed people. And those are going to be the three areas that we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray, and we will start in verse 28 of Luke 19, and we'll get going. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that it's you who works to lead your church, Lord, to minister to us. And so, Lord, we want to yield to you now. Lord, any preconceived ideas or circumstances that we're feeling, Lord, we want to lay those aside so that we can hear from the living God this morning. That you would convict us of, Lord, sin, of righteousness, of judgment. That you would show us the beauty of Christ this morning. We want to we leave here this morning, Lord, not just uh, nodding our heads in agreement, Lord, but changed and transformed by your word. Lord, we want to go out and act as a result. We want to be hearers and doers this morning. And so we need your help this morning, Lord. We're desperate for you to show up, for you to speak to us, for you to communicate. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing, we can, we can receive nothing. We need your Holy Spirit to work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill this place, Lord, that you would, that you would direct us this morning. We're reliant upon you to accomplish your purpose this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give me the ability to communicate from your heart, Lord, as as um, I open my mouth, I pray that I would be able to speak the words that you desire and to communicate from your heart, Lord. 
and that we would hear the gospel this morning, that we would see Jesus exalted. Lord, we also just pray for the other churches that are meeting in Berkeley and in the East Bay. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give unity to your people. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would be preached and proclaimed faithfully this morning. Lord, we want you to have your way um, in the East Bay. We want to see people meet Jesus. We want to see lives changed, Lord. And we know that it cannot happen apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so do that work, Lord. We're thankful that you allow us to be a part of it. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're looking at Luke 19, verse 28. We're going to pick up and we're going to read to um, just the the first section. We're going to read through, uh, let's see here, verse 40. So starting in, in 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, uh, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down, Uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So we have this picture this morning of of Jesus now making his way to Jerusalem to die. We saw in the Gospel of Mark that he has proven again who he is in, in making messianic claims and fulfilling prophecy. But now Jesus here gives specific instructions to his disciples that they might... Uh, provide a colt for him to ride in on that he might fulfill a specific prophecy. Now we find this prophecy in Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9 9, it says this Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus gives instructions to the disciples to go and find this donkey to bring him along so that he might fulfill this prophecy that is spoken of in Zechariah 9. And the disciples, they go and they do that. But in, in, in coming into the city in this specific way, in riding in on a donkey, Jesus is further solidifying his messianic claim. He has proven in it through his actions and through the things that, that he's said and done, that he is claiming to fulfill this role of this Messiah. But now, if there was any doubt before, it is absolutely certain that this is what he was claiming in coming in and entering the city in this manner. It's a, it's a very deliberate attempt that, uh, that you know, or a, a deliberate action that Jesus is, is doing here, uh, making a specific claim to be the Messiah. 
And as he rides along, we see that the people kind of recognized his claim. They, they recognized who he was claiming to be. But as we'll see, they're mistaken about the type of kingdom that this Messiah would bring. As he rode along, it says in verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, spreading your cloak on the road would be, it was a way to um, welcome a ruler, a king. It, it was a sign of greeting. And so as kings would enter a city, the subjects to that king would take off their, their cloaks and they would lay them down so that way their animal would ride on top of them and, you know, it's a, sh- a sign of respect that was communicated here. And so Jesus is making this claim, this very deliberate claim, and the people are understanding this claim in that they are receiving him as a king. They're, they're laying down their cloaks for this colt to walk upon. And then they say with their words in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we know that from the other gospel accounts, they also said uh, Hosanna, and that's kind of encapsulated in the gospel of Mark or of Luke here when they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest, the uh, original language, they line up there. And what they're essentially saying is this is what we're longing for. We, are, we want you to save now. That's what Hosanna means. And that's what they were getting at when they're saying, you know, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's this longing for salvation. And they, the people were hailing Jesus as this coming king. Jesus makes the claim. The people respond by laying down their cloaks. And now they respond verbally by shouting out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the rabbis had always taught that when Messiah would come, the people would sing this specific psalm. It's a psalm taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here, the people are singing this, this psalm that the rabbis had said they would sing when, when Messiah comes. And at this time, Israel is living in a state of occupation, and they're looking for a king. They're looking for someone to, to come in and rule over them and to remove uh, the occupation of Rome upon them. And so there's a little bit of tension, you, you know, you can kind of sense in the air. They're shouting out, you know, blessed is, is the king. You know, they're laying down their cloaks and, and they have this expectation that this person is going to save them, this Messiah. It was clear that they were looking for a king, but Jesus would not and he could not meet the type of, of kingly rule that they were looking for. They had a desire for essentially a military uh, leader, uh, a nationalistic warrior. And so Jesus' entry into Jerusalem wasn't one that would be typical of a nationalistic leader, a reigning king. You know, when a king would, would come back from war or would, would, you know, be able to go out to war, they would have a grand parade. Or even when one would be uh, crowned anew, they would have a grand parade. And the king would be put on a white horse and paraded through the city. And there would be a lot of fanfare and a celebration, you know, all culminating with the, the crowning of the king and a great celebration. But that's not how Jesus enters. He is a king, but he doesn't enter as a king 
would naturally enter. He enters in fulfillment of prophecy uh, on a donkey in, in, you know, the most humble way he enters here. Now, and we know that that was his, his mindset because we saw, we see in, in Mark 10, 45, that was what Jesus said from the start. He came as a king not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that was the purpose. Now, the, the kingdom of Christ, of Messiah, here is misunderstood from the very beginning. It's not one of political power. It's not one of, of, of you know, ruling and reigning with the sword, but rather it's one that will be accomplished through the death of the king, and it will be brought about so that the people would be freed from sin. Now, because everybody that was on the scene here, because there was expectation about what this king would be like and what his kingdom would be like, it naturally led to the rejection of this king when he showed up in a, in a different form than what they were expecting. They, they, they mistook, you know, they had a mistaken idea of the kingdom that this Messiah would bring. And so because of that, when the king rightly shows up, it naturally brings about the rejection of the king, the rejection of Christ. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the people here, they are rejoicing at the, the entering of the king. They're, they're having, you know, their celebration. And although they, you know, we're going to see shortly that they, have, they, you know, we'll see that they don't fully understand the kingdom that Christ is bringing. But the Pharisees verbally express that. They say, you know, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're, they're trying to stop the rejoicing of the people at the coming of the king. You know, their, their response reveals really their heart. They try to stop him and they, you know, they're just, they, they're calling out to Jesus and being like, look, if you're who, who you say you are, you need to tell your people, you know, to be quiet. But look at Jesus' response here in verse 40. Look at his answer. He says, he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What he's saying here is that nothing can stop this event. Nothing in the world could stop this moment, this specific day, this point in history. If I told, the, if I told all these people who were celebrating me, who were declaring me to be this blessed king who's coming in the name of the Lord, even if I told them to be quiet, the very stones would cry out. This was an event that was planned and ordained and orchestrated by God, and nothing would stop it. It's, it when I'm reading it, I almost kind of get like this picture, like this is just straight up like Narnia stuff, like happening. Like, you know, something crazy is going to go down, and like all of a sudden, like all the animals are start talking. If like, if the declaration of who Jesus is isn't brought about, like creation is going to groan forth, it will cry forth. And that's even what we see in Romans 8. Romans 8.22 tells us this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not just 
people, but all things that God has created are subject to the Creator and worship the Creator. The Psalms tells us that, that the heavens declare the glory of God. They, they worship God through their beauty, and they point us back to God. And here we see that Jesus' claim is that even if the, the, the people who were celebrating him were to be silenced, they would, the, the, very, the very stones would cry out and, and declare who he is. It's a radical picture of this king entering into the final, you know, really hours of, of his life. Now, if the leaders, the religious leaders, if they were aware of the prophecy at the time, they would know that this moment was ordained by God. They wouldn't be like, you know, be quiet, or, you know, tell, tell your disciples to shut up, and, you know, everyone needs to be quiet here. They would know from Daniel 9, uh, verse 25, that this event was scheduled. It says, uh, you know, in, in Daniel 9.25, that from the time that the decree goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, it would be exactly 483 days. Or, excuse me, years. 483 years. Way different. So, on March 14th, 445 B.C., the decree was given to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And when you read Daniel 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, it it talks about, um, you know, in, in cycles, in 69 seven-year periods, which equal out to be 483 years or 173,880 days, which works out to be April 6th, 32 AD, which is the day that Christ enters into Jerusalem here on this cult. This was the very Sunday, 483 years to the day, after King Artaxerxes gave the decree to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem. And so nothing is going to stop Jesus from entering and the declaration of the king from going forth. It was prophesied to the day. Now, we said the kingdom they didn't understand, but because they didn't understand the kingdom, because they didn't understand, they had their own expectations about that, they would not receive the king. They reject the king. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had you known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children uh, within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus knows here that he is a king that will be rejected. And he weeps over the city. He's, he's crying here, weeping, because he desires Israel to repent. That's his ultimate desire. And, you know, he, he clearly sees and makes this prophecy as a result because they would not repent, because they would reject him. 
they would, he, he prophesies over Jerusalem, declaring what would happen, this time that would come when Jerusalem would then face uh, the attack of, uh, of another army. You know, Titus would come in and he would destroy them. He describes it in this manner of, of ancient warfare. There are a barricade that would be built around the city to prevent anyone from going in or going out and wanting to, to you know, starve the people who lived in the city into you know, eventually giving up and trying to get food. But here, Jesus is speaking of this attack from Titus, and, and he would indeed do this, he, you know, exactly what Jesus describes. And we talked about this a little bit in the Gospel of Mark, how you know, there would be a fire started in, in the temple, and that the gold leaf and the gold portions, uh, the gold vessels that were used in the temple would melt and be put into the would, would melt between the cracks of the temple, and then the soldiers would tear the temple apart to get the gold. And so Jesus' prophecy of the temple would come to pass. And all of this would happen as a result of Israel's failure to recognize the king and repent. But we also know from Scripture that the whole idea is that Jesus is rejected so that we might be, not be rejected. He is rejected by the people here so that ultimately we wouldn't be rejected when we stand before God. Jesus visited, visits Jerusalem. He visits with an offer of salvation to demonstrate who he is. And that's what he's kind of coming into uh, um, he's kind of coming in to demonstrate this early on um, in, in this week where, where he'll show who he is. He'll communicate and teach on the Temple Mount. But the people don't want him. Now, we've spoken quickly of this mistaken kingdom and the idea of the king that's been rejected. But what is the actual kingdom like? Because we, that's, it's important to know. And we're going to look at it in uh, three different portions here real quickly. It's a perfect kingdom. It's ruled by a righteous king and made up of redeemed people. So the first thing we want to look at here is the idea of the type of kingdom. If you, if you have a second, flip over to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll look quickly at that. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage we typically visit around Christmas, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, speaking of Christ, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in this prophecy in the book of Isaiah, we have a sketch, an outline of what the kingdom will be like. It says in, in Isaiah 9 there that the kingdom features uh, something that is ruled by Christ, but it's established with everlasting peace. Christ will make peace forever. There will be no, no war, no conflict, because the king has made peace. It will be upheld with justice and righteousness forever. 
And then lastly, we see that it is established by God. So the kingdom that we that will be receiving that that Christ will rule over as a righteous king is a perfect kingdom. It, it, it has no uh, conflict. It is completely filled with the peace that is bought by Christ. It is upheld with justice and righteousness, and it's established by God. Now, the kingdom, this perfect kingdom, will be ruled by a righteous king. Earlier, we looked at uh, Psalm 118, verse 26. It's this psalm that is, it's a declaration of the coming king. It's, you know, we, we saw there that it's the song that the people sing. Blessed is, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's this prophecy. But if you look down a couple of verses at Psalm 118, verse 22, it also describes this king as a righteous king, but a rejected king. It says in verse, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone, speaking of Christ, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this king, it's prophesied that he will be a righteous king, but he will be a rejected king. And that's what we're seeing as Jesus will ride into Jerusalem to present himself. He is indeed a righteous king, but one who will be rejected, ruling over a perfect kingdom. Not one on this earth, but one to come. Jesus here is rejected so that we might not be rejected. Isaiah 53 declares it this way. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He is the one that brings this perfect peace. This rejected king brings about this perfect peace, this everlasting peace, peace through his death and his resurrection. It's through his punishment that we have this everlasting peace. But Jesus is not only a, right, a rejected king, but he's also a righteous king. He's rejected, but he's ultimately exalted. Look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 9. It tells us, although he was rejected, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He was rejected, but now is given the name that is above every name. And then in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says there in Philippians 2 that Jesus is given a name. He's exalted above a name that is above every name. He's rejected, but now is exalted. And now every knee and every tongue will confess. Now, this means that those who love Christ and those who do not will make this confession. 
They will bow the knee and they will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This confession for those who believe will be a voluntary one of allegiance, but those who do not, it will be a confession of truth, of who Jesus is, a declaration. Those who reject and oppose Jesus will not be able to withstand this confession. Every knee will bow, not just every knee that pledges allegiance to Christ, but every knee. Every tongue will confess, not just every tongue that confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord, but will make the confession that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord of all, whether they confess allegiance to Christ or not. Because it is the nature of who God is. It is who he is. There is you can't get around it. It's just like Jesus was communicating to the Pharisees. If the people are quiet, the stones will cry out and declare who I am. They will make this declaration. We have, a, you know, even a little bit of an example of this when we look at the account of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18. There in John chapter 18, Jesus goes to meet his betrayer, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. But in John's account, he communicates something that we don't see in the Gospel of Mark that we looked at. As he goes forward, Jesus goes to uh, the, the approaching mob to arrest him, and he engages them, and he says, Whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he. Now, when he says, I am he, he's using the name of God there. He's communicating, you know, he's saying, I am, the power of God. He's claiming to be divine there. And it says there, when he said that, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's a declaration of who Christ is. He's declaring that, and because of that declaration, they draw back and, you know, stumble to the ground at, at, that, at that declaration. And so every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, whether that is an allegiance that is being pledged or a straight fact, a declaration of truth of who Jesus is. Now, when Jesus first appears here in Luke 19, we see him rolling in on a donkey in like, you know, in a very humble fashion. He doesn't have a crazy parade, but ultimately we will see an exalted Christ. Christ has come here to to pay the price for our sins. He's come in a humble manner, but ultimately Christ will be exalted and will appear in glory. Flip over quickly to Revelation 19. This is the picture that we see of the victorious Christ, the exalted Christ, the one that is spoken of in Philippians 2, that's given the name above every name, the one that is not coming in on a donkey anymore. That is not coming in in humility, but one who is a victor, who has defeated sin and death. In Revelation 19, it describes Jesus this way. John speaking, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Jesus is no longer riding a humble colt, but is now upon a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's sweet. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a very different picture than what we see in Luke 19. This isn't a, 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 you know, this humble Jesus that is coming in, you know, on a donkey to like, you know, this really kind of last minute parade. This is a Jesus that is exalted, riding on a white horse, one who judges in righteousness, who has made peace, everlasting peace in his kingdom by his own blood. He is given an elaborate crown, it tells us, with many diadems. He has special clothes, a robe that is dipped in blood. He has a special name that we don't even get to know, only he gets to know. It's like that special. It's crazy. And then he also has King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his robe and on his thigh. I don't know if that's like a crazy tattoo or what that's about, but he has these exalted features that he did not have when he rode in on this humble colt. Now he rides leading an army in war, and he is victorious. It's a very different picture that we see. He's a rejected king, but a righteous king, one that will be exalted, one that will be lifted up. And because he's a rejected king, but a righteous king, he's made it a way for us to be a part of his kingdom. He's made a way for us to be his redeemed people. Look at Colossians 1. It speaks of us this way. Those who have been received, who have, who have made a choice to follow Christ, to find our identity in him, it tells us this in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been delivered from darkness. This rejected but righteous king has delivered us from darkness that we were living in, but has delivered us to It speaks of it this way, which I think is really neat. It says it's transferred us. When that word transferred us, we kind of think, um, you know, we kind of think of like things being transferred, like money from your bank account. You know, you're going to transfer like from one account to another or you're going to catch a bus transfer. But what this actually is communicating is a more accurate word would be translated. We haven't just been transferred. It's not just like, oh, you get to be from like over here to over here. But like we, if we could even make a way ourselves, we couldn't get there. Translated speaks like they're not even the same language. Jesus has made us completely new and changed us into a new creation and made us able to be into this new kingdom. He has translated us, transferred, translated us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've been transferred from or translated from the, the domain delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son 
in, in that kingdom, we have redemption and we have forgiveness of sin. We're made a part of that kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Leon talked a little bit about this last week when we looked at Ephesians 2.19. He, he, he communicated it to us this way. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're no longer members of the, of the domain of darkness. We're no longer in that realm, but now we are members of the kingdom of the beloved son. <coughs> We're members of the household of God, and we're built, so not only are we members of the household of God, but we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We saw that, we looked at that in Psalm 118, that the cornerstone that is rejected has become, you know, the chief cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes what God has done with that who has been rejected, with him with Christ, who has been rejected, he is now exalted. He has his own kingdom. We are a part of that kingdom. But now, as Christ is the cornerstone, in whom, verse 21 of Ephesians 2, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're built into this new house, this holy temple is what it's communicated with Christ as the cornerstone. But now we're a part of this kingdom, we're a redeemed people, but like, what's the point? Like, that's awesome, we're in, cool, sweet. We have, you know, if, if we have allegiance to this king, this rejected but righteous king, we're now a redeemed people as he has made a way for us to, to be in his kingdom and we're made into this house, this, this, holy, uh, this holy temple in the Lord with Christ as the cornerstone. What's the point? We find it in 1 Peter 2. We'll wrap up here with this. The point of this is it all comes back full circle to Jesus' mission, his mission to rescue us, to save us, so that we can have fellowship with him again, so that we can know him, that we can rightly have Christ as our king. It describes it this way in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There it is again. To be a, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, and for those who, uh, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey his, his, uh, the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people... A, for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the point here. We're made a people. It tells us it wraps us, it wraps us up there at the end. It says that he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were once not a people, but now we're God's people. But what does it say the point of it is? Why are we built into this, this holy temple? Why are we built there with this uh, cornerstone? Christ is the, the chief cornerstone there. Well, it tells us in verse 9, it tells us what we are first. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's true because of the rejected but righteous king, what he's done for us. And it tells us in verse 9, we're people for his own possession, but here's what we should do. Here's what our purpose is. That we may, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. We're created there. We're created into this holy temple, this people, to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. What does that mean? It means we're created for worship, to, to, to sing about, to communicate, to live out rightfully and celebrate what God has done. It's worship. It's what it is. That's what the people of God are called together to do. To worship. To respond to what Jesus has done for us. He's, he, Peter tells us there, he's done all these things. He's made us a holy temple, our own, uh, his own people that he's called together for his own purposes. And he's done it so that we might respond and proclaim the excellencies, the greatness, the goodness, the faithfulness the amazing work that he has done in calling us out of darkness and into the light, into his marvelous light. That's the point. That's what he has done. And so when we rightly understand the kingdom, when we're not in the camp of you know, having a mistaken idea about the kingdom of God, we can rightly understand the king even though he, he's a rejected king, he's one who is restored, who is righteous, and he has redeemed us as his own people that we might respond in worship, that we might be his people called together, not for our own purposes, but to respond in worship. Now, why in the world did the people in Luke 19 miss it? They missed it. You know, we see that the, you know, only a couple verses later, the people who are celebrating are, you know, part of a crowd chanting for Jesus to be killed. The Pharisees never really received him, even though he demonstrated who he was. Why did they miss it? Well, it was because they were looking for a different Jesus, one that met their expectations, one that, that filled you know, their idea of what a Messiah should do, what, who, who would fit their mold, who, you know, kind of go through and be able to fit their checklist. They had wrong expectations about who Messiah was and what the kingdom would be like. And expectations are really the thing where we get off track a lot. 
you know, that's, isn't, I mean, isn't that the case? It's kind of like, whenever you find yourself getting upset about something in life, it's because your expectations weren't met, whether it's something that, you know, you thought about or didn't, the reason that you're upset, the reason that you're, you know, angry or whatever, it's because you had expectations, whether you were, you know, very knowledgeable about them or not, that weren't met. When I, uh, when I worked for Apple for a while, the whole thing that they taught you was about setting expectations. You know, it was like, we don't really care about, you know, you don't need to know about the stuff. You just need to know, like, how to not disappoint people. So here's how to, like, tell them what their expectations should be. And the Word of God tells us what our expectations should be. Because when we try to create our own expectations based upon our own personal desires or our own personal comfort, we're going to come away disappointed. Because Jesus doesn't fit into any of our molds, but he fits into the perfect mold that God set forth in Scripture and the one that we need, not the one that we want. And we need to receive that. There's not another option. There's not like a different model. The Jesus that is presented in Scripture is the one that we need for salvation, the one that we need to know God, to enjoy Him forever. And that's ultimately what we want to do. We want to respond collectively as a body, as a church, and individually as we're supposed to. We want to see in the, in the text today, in every day in our life, that Jesus is a rejected but righteous king who redeemed us. We're a redeemed people because of what he has done, and then we want to respond as a result. We want to be a people that will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Not try to build our own kingdom, try to build our own thing, but we want to join Jesus in what he's doing and celebrate him and glorify God through the things that we do, the things that we say, the way that we love one another. Now, that's all, you know, all fine. And those are good desires to have. But it's an overwhelming thing to also desire. And we also have to recognize that it's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we can, we can muster up the strength to live that way, but it's something that we have to communicate it to the Lord in prayer and receive strength and direction and the filling of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. It's something that we can desire rightfully to have right desires in our minds and to say, you know what, that's, that's what we want to do. We want to be obedient to Scripture. But unless the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to do it, you're going to try to do it in your own power and you're going to fail. And so that's what we want to pray into now as, as we move forward. You know, when Jesus gave the Great Commission... After he was about to ascend to heaven, he told the disciples uh, in Matthew 28, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
He gave them a direction. He said, do it. This is what I want you to do. My final, you know, here's, like, here's your task. From here on, do it till the end of the age. But then, you know, and that's kind of where, the, where if you're reading it in the Gospel of, of Matthew, that's where it ends. But then when you read in Acts, he says, don't do anything until you first go and wait in Jerusalem for the filling of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Before the Holy Spirit, Peter was just blowing it. After the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches and like, you know, thousands of people get saved. It's the working of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be faithful to these things. And so we want to be faithful in proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. We want to live righteously here, um, you know, with our friends, with our family in the city for the glory of God. We want to you know, bend our knee before God. We want to confess with our mouth to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it's the Holy Spirit working within us that allows us to do that. And so we can't do it on our own, but we must rely upon Christ and the Holy Spirit working within us, and we have to ask for that. We have to to be dependent and reliant upon it. If you don't, you will get burnt out. You will get tired. It will be awful. And so let's do that collectively together. We'll respond in worship. We will ask for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to minister to us. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and that in it we see, Lord, your love for us, what you've done, that although you are a rejected king, you are a righteous king one who is exalted, ultimately one who is lifted up. Lord, who will receive all glory and honor and praise. Lord, we're thankful that you have made us a redeemed people. And so, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to respond in worship, not just now as we respond to the text, Lord, as we respond to this morning's sermon, to what you are speaking to us individually, Lord, but we want to, res- to, to respond in worship, a life of worship every day. Lord, and we know that we can't do it apart from the filling of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would do that, Lord. We ask that you would fill us, that you would empower us to live Holy Spirit-filled lives for your glory. That you would work in us, Lord, both to will and to do that we would be able to accomplish a life of worship because you have enabled us to do that. Lord, we want to see the beauty of Jesus. We want to see the work of Christ every day and respond to the righteous King. Lord, put the, put the work of Christ before our eyes, before our hearts every day so that we might live, Lord, uh, just in response, Lord, that your, your praise, your worship would be continually upon our lips. Lord, we want to see Jesus lifted up, Lord, both in our church and our lives individually, in our city, in the East Bay. Lord, we want you to do a work. And so, Lord, we know apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we just, we give up on our own. But we know, Lord, that, that with your spirit, when you want to do something, Lord, nothing can stop it. And so enable us to rightly love you, to serve you, to live lives of worship for your glory. We love you, Jesus. Amen.